Bibles to Ephesians chapter, excuse me, don't go to Ephesians, uh, go to Exodus chapter 4. Exodus chapter 4, we, we open our Bibles to Exodus 4 and we returning to the Lord's call of Moses, this uh, the section of Exodus where there's this groundwork being laid for what is later described as this mighty act of God where he brings the people of Israel out of Egypt by his mighty hand. And as we recognize when God acts, he has in his uh, sovereignty and power and providence to act according to natural means and supernatural means, but he often and ordinarily works naturally or through means, I should say. And so we see here that the means by which he's going to do this is through a spokesman, and that is Moses. And Moses doesn't come to the task in a vacuum. He doesn't just enter the stage of calling uh, Pharaoh to let the people go uh, without preparation. And so that's what we have before us this morning in Ephesians 4, Moses' preparation. And it's actually a culmination of the preparation of the last 80 years of his life that the Lord had been working in him. What we kind of have, and we'll see as I'll make uh, reference, is in this final portion, not that it will be a completion of, of Moses' pruning, but it will be in some ways a more... Uh, dialed down a more specific and focused approach, uh, at least in uh, our awareness of Moses' life. For certainly the Lord was preparing Moses in his 40 years in uh, Egypt's palace and his 40 years as a shepherd in Midian. But year by year and step by step, Moses' life, and God was, strong, was working in Moses' life, a a chosen path for him that would be for God's glory and his ultimate good. And so as we also approach the Old Testament and this section of the Old Testament, we're reminded that the Lord here is the same Lord of the Old Testament of Exodus as he is of Ephesians. As I uh, made that uh, mistake of calling you to turn to Ephesians, but it's the same God, it's the same Lord, it's the same Spirit who rev who's revealing Himself in His Word. And so we come to it with the providential hope and trust that as we come to this part of Scripture, though Christ is not incarnate, the eternal Son, though existing with the Father, we should find a deposit of that coming uh, in shadow, in type, and in blessed anticipation of what he will do in history. And so we also recognize as, what, as he works in history, the historical context here is the people of Israel are living under the protection, are living under uh, the blessedness of the Abrahamic covenant, whereby they were to keep all that the Lord had commanded them, specifically the work of circumcision or the task of circumcision so that they'd be kept in the covenant and that God would graciously, through Abraham's seed, bless them with 
as being a people, a nation, and giving them a land. And even beyond that, to bless Abraham's descendant, the offspring, who will, bring, who will bless all nations. And so it will be through him that his descendants will never fall out of covenant, but be kept in it by their faithful Savior. Follow along as I read for us Exodus chapter 4, verses 1 through 17. Hear the word of the Lord. Then Moses said, What if they will not believe me or listen to what I say? For they may say, The Lord has not appeared to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? And he said, A staff. Then he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses fled from it. But the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand and grasp it by its tail. So he stretched out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. The Lord furthermore said to him, now put your hand into your bosom. So he put his hand into his bosom, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then he said, put your hand in your bosom again. So he put his hand into his bosom again, and when he took it out of his bosom, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you or heed the witness of the first sign, then they may believe the witness of the last sign. But if they will not believe even these two signs or heed what you say, then you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. And the water which you take from the Nile will become, a blood, will become blood on the dry ground. Then Moses said to the Lord, Please, Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither recently nor in the past, nor since you have spoken to your servant, nor am I, for I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes him mute or deaf or seen or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now then go. I, even I, will be with your mouth and teach you what you are to say. But he said, Please, Lord, now send the message by whomever you will. Then the angel of the Lord burned against Moses and he said, Is there not your brother Aaron, the Levite? I know that he speaks fluently. And moreover, behold, he is coming out to meet you. When he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You are to speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I, even I, will be with your mouth and his mouth. And I will teach you at what you are to do. Moreover, he shall speak for you to the people. And he will be as a mouth for you. And you will be as a God to him. You shall, take him, you shall take in your hand this staff with which you shall perform the signs. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us go to him for help once more. O oh Lord, we come before you one more time to ask your hand upon this message. As your word is to be ministered in truth, I pray that your hand would be upon that. As your word is to be administered in spirit, we ask also this would be done by your will. We thank you, Lord, knowing that you will accomplish all to the ends of your glory and our good. We ask these things in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.
Well, there are few things that Deborah, my wife, likes more than a nice, healthy rosebush. There's a well. There's a well-maintained yard that we often pass as we uh, drive down the road when we leave our house that she's in awe of. She's even said that she might knock on this stranger's door and ask them how they keep their yard, specifically this one rose tree, a rose bush in the front yard. And uh, she has learned that roses need attention. And I, through her, have learned such things that the right, there needs to be a right amount of water. You, can't, oh, you can overwater them and certainly you can underwater them. You can water on top of them inappropriately. We need to get the ground and not the leaves. That there's the right amount of sunlight that they should receive and they should not get too much or too little. That even when they bloom and, and they produce their rose, that in order to keep them healthy, you cut those roses off as they begin at the first sign of them withering. That you also are to prune their leaves as they die off. You take off the unhealthy leaves so that they'll be replaced by new and healthy leaves. And then the ground around them is to be weeded and the soil is to be cared for. And certainly even in the winter, they're taken down to their very stems. All this to produce a healthy plant that flowers in due season. And here in our passage, we encounter Moses being cared for by the Lord, much like a good uh, uh, gardener cares for rose bushes. That with every objection, Moses suggests the Lord prunes and weeds and if need be, takes down to the stem so that Moses will in God's time flower and flourish accordingly. We haven't left the idea of the incomprehensible God as we looked at last week as he revealed himself to be as the self-existent, independent, simple, eternal God that bush that is burning but yet is not being consumed, the angel of the Lord appearing in it and speaking to Moses out of it, that we are to approach him by faith in Christ and that it should produce in us reverence and endurance. And so we haven't fully left this study for we're in the same interaction. The angel of the Lord out of the burning bush is speaking to Moses. This incomprehensible God is speaking to Moses. And we now, through Moses' calling, I believe we can think about a question that is, comes up often in our life, or maybe it's not a question that comes up in your mind, but maybe you've thought about it as you're encouraged by uh, a well-meaning brother or sister in Christ, that when you're going through something and you're struggling and you're thinking over this thing and you're sharing it with this person and they tell you, give it to the Lord. There's a little bit of Christianese there. There's, a, there's instru immediate instruction and I think we understand something of the fundamental nature of giving it to the Lord. But do we know what it means? Do we know what it means to give it to the Lord? And so as we look at Moses being pruned in God, 
uh, pruned by God, we're going to answer this question, what it means to give it to the Lord. And we're going to answer it this way, that it means attending to his instruction each Lord's Day to correct our ignorance, relying on his ability to accomplish all his holy will over our ineffectiveness, proclaiming his sufficiency over our inadequacy, and altogether looking to Christ, who is the, who is the only qualified Savior. So we're going to be answering the question. I'm giving you the answer. I'm giving you the end at the beginning, that we're to attend to his instruction each Lord's Day to correct our ignorance, rely on his ability to accomplish all his holy will over our ineffectiveness, proclaiming his sufficiency over our inadequacy, and altogether looking to Christ, who is the only qualified Savior. We'll look at this answer under four headings. The Lord's instruction, the Lord's ability, the Lord's sufficiency, and the Lord our Savior. We first address, as it comes to us in our passage, the Lord's instruction. Proverbs 1.8 says, Listen, my son, to your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. We see all throughout Scripture an exhortation to heed the word of the Lord. Why? Because we are ignorant people. Just like Moses in the previous part of our in the in the previous part of this section in chapter three, Moses says, Who am I to say has sent me? Moses was ignorant of who God was. What am I to say? to them. Moses was ignorant of what to say. And Moses didn't ask this question, but the Lord graciously and uh, over and abundantly supplied what the Lord was going to do, for we are ignorant of what the Lord would do. But the Lord provides instruction. It's overall a theme of, of this whole event, really, that the Lord is instructing Moses what he is to do and what is to be the outcome of it? What even will be the resistance to it in such a way that uh, Moses would be pruned of his ignorance? And so we, this morning, as we look at the Lord's gracious interaction with Moses as it is to his instruction, he is first to know who the Lord is. If we are to be instructed. We first know who is to be instructing us. And so we spent some time looking at that in very short amount of, of material, who God is in himself, Father, Son, and Spirit. We must know, we want to know, if somebody were to be calling out to you in a dark room, you may recognize their voice if you knew them, but if you didn't recognize their voice, you want to know who is it that's giving you instruction? If you were in a dark room and there was many pitfalls between you and the exit or you're in a dark place and, you're, and you've got to get from one end to the other and somebody from the, on the other end just five steps forward, three steps to the right and, and starts guiding you through it, you would wonder who it is is calling you, who it is is that giving you this instruction. So the Lord first, as we looked at, and I'm covering some ground we did last week, the Lord has revealed himself 
to, Mo to Moses. Next, you would, especially as it relates to the Lord, what is it that you are doing? And the Lord tells him that he is going to send him to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh is going to oppose him, and he's going to work wonders by his hand to put Pharaoh in his place. And it's going to be in such a way that when they leave, that they will not leave empty-handed, but they will actually leave in a way without one spear throw in that day and age. They're going to plunder the Egyptians as if they were conquered in war. Finally, as we get down to our section, as we look at the Lord's instruction, as he's revealed himself and what he is to do, what is it that is going to be required of Moses? And we, we see what it is to be required of Moses because the Lord asks him what is in his hand when Moses says that, what if they don't believe me when I say you sent me? What if my conveying of this is ineffectual towards that end? What if my ability is lacking when it comes to this? And so continuing to prune Moses' ignorance, the Lord now moves to prune uh, Moses' inability or his thoughts of ineffectiveness by giving him three signs. And the first sign can is related to what is required of Moses because the first sign is related to uh, he asked Moses what is in your hand and Moses says a staff and we'll look at that in just one uh, in a few minutes but first we must address this idea of signs altogether signs and wonders are throughout scripture but they're not replete in scripture that is they're not uh, they're throughout scripture, but they're specific in scripture. So that when we see signs being used, we, we wonder what is the use of these signs. And we can recognize that signs are used as authenticating God's movement in redemptive history. Just like here with Moses. Moses said, what if they don't believe me when I say you have appeared to me? So God gives him these signs so that they would believe him. So that they, his, his uh, message would be authenticated, uh, an authentic God movement in redemptive history. And so here Moses is to demonstrate to the Israelites that God was about to deliver them out of Egypt. Over and over throughout the rest of the Old Testament, miracles act as demonstrations of God's action on behalf of his people. So that... Then when the fullness of time comes, as scripture says, Jesus demonstrates that God was about to deliver his people through the life, death, and resurrection of himself. But in Christ, the signs come in a greater way as Christ is exercising divine power, inherent divine power without mediation of revelation for the son knows the father. He comes directly from the Father. Here, Moses had to travel all through Egypt and then through Midian and then be drawn to this bush and to receive this message and to receive these signs and then take them to the people where Christ comes in the incarnation directly from the Father. So Christ comes from the eternal presence of the Father where Moses comes from the Lord's presence 
at Sinai, and so Christ's miracles have a greater uh, substance to them. Having now taken our nature, Christ having now taken our nature into glory, as we read in Philippians 2, he provides his spirit to demonstrate again God's presence with his people. Where we see miracles again appearing in Acts and, and in the epistles, they are appearing to prove Christ's presence in his temple, his body, the church. Through sign gifts, having those sign gifts having expired with the last foundation stone being laid, that is the death of the last apostle, and that these gifts actually testified that the word that they gave that we have in scripture was the very word of God. Do you see how the miracles play in the same realm of authentication in the Old Testament as they do in the New See, the Israelites were not to put their trust in Moses' rod becoming a snake or his hand becoming leprous and then healing again, or even in the Nile becoming blood. They were to be put their faith in the message and, and more fully in the God of the message. So it is here, as Peter says, in what we have in Scripture, we have the prophetic word made more sure. There in Peter's epistle, he was talking about how he and the other two apostles witnessed Christ's transfiguration. They witnessed the deposit of Christ's humanity being glorified. A wonder, I can't, I mean, without words to describe it. We just, it, we just have a description of it happening. And Peter says that that being now recorded because it was authenticated in Christ's resurrection, authenticated further in the Spirit's provision in the sign gifts in the early church. That being authenticated, we have a word more sure. And he says, to which you do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. And so as we address these signs and wonders that he provides Moses and will address further signs and wonders that the Lord accomplishes in the plagues. Let us not forget that what we have in scripture is more sure than those signs and wonders because they're authenticated ultimately in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And they're and rooted in the nature and person of, of the Godhead. Father, Son, and Spirit. What are the signs, though, that the Lord was providing Moses? What are uh, this understanding of the Lord proving to Moses that though Moses says, I'm not, what if I'm not effective? What if my ability is lacking? The Lord is going to say, I am not. And he begins with the rod. And, I, and as I said, it, it's connected to the instruction because what is the, the Lord is instructing Moses what he is to bring. Well, what is he to bring? He's to bring all the providence in his life up to that point. The staff that Moses has carried was the shepherd's staff that he, that he carried in Midian. It was to remind Moses that he was to bring all of himself. That God was going to use what the Lord 
had providentially worked in him up until that point and then show him, I'm also going to do beyond. I'm going to continue to work in you, Moses, and on you. There it is, the staff, but it's something about the staff where he throws it on the ground and it becomes a serpent. This idea of this serpent that he would take by the tail is contextually, we could say, immediately pictured of Pharaoh. Pharaoh and, and the uh, pharaohs of Egypt had a keen mind to the cobra or the asp. It was a part of their headdress. It was considered amongst uh, the ranking of their deities. And so as the pharaoh wore the insignia of the serpent, so he bore the presence or the, uh, the being of that deity. And so Moses was to take the serpent by the tail. Later on, he would demonstrate, the Lord would demonstrate the superiority over such gods when he demonstrates this before Pharaoh himself. But we can see a greater context in Genesis chapter 3. We know that the Lord, in cursing the serpent, he says, I will put enmity between you, your seed and the seed of the woman, and he will crush your head, and you shall strike his heel. We know that being foreshadowing of the coming of Christ, crushing the head of the serpent, though being uh, suffering, but suffering unto death in the crushing of the head. And so here... He puts the serpent on the ground and he says that enmity will be undone through God's ability. Moses wasn't performing this. God was performing this. God was telling Moses, I will take what you have and I will undo what separates God and man. And that is the sin and the unholiness of man's nature. We may even see that uh, there's a place for the long ending of Mark here. Where in the Mark 16, verse 18, it says they will pick up snakes with their hands. An enigmatic phrase in that part of Mark. But if we look at it in connection to Exodus 4, we can see that it's symbolic of what the Lord had done in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That he was enabling his people not to pick up serpents off the ground, but that he was crushing the head of the snake such that we can take the snake, the serpents, by their tail and handle them and not be harmed. What of the hand? He gives them, he transforms his staff into a better use. And now he, he takes the hand, his hand, maybe Moses' right hand, and he puts it in his bosom. And when he brings it out, it is leprous, and he puts it back in, and it is healed. Immediate context, we think that the Egyptians were well-renowned for their medicine. The healing of diseases was something that the Egyptians were known for. And here the Lord again proclaims himself Lord of all, Lord over creation, that he can take a healthy hand and make it leprous and he can take a leprous hand and make it healthy but beyond that he's also showing that he is the God who removes impurity Moses is exposing through these objections his impure heart 
his, his fallen nature and demonstrating it before a people who may not listen to him, who will not listen to him, who will be in the same boat as Moses because Moses is objecting to God and then eventually the Israelites will object to Moses. So the Lord is showing that I will take your impurity and make it clean. And the bosom of the heart is I will take your heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. So that God will be a God of the Israelites. God will be a God of his people and he will dwell again with man. And finally, the one sign that would require belief and faith of Moses because he wasn't at the Nile. He couldn't demonstrate this or test this sign. This was, Moses was going to take this sign on the word of God. And he was to take the water of the Nile and pour it on the ground. We know the significance of the Nile in Egypt, the place it had. It had multiple gods associated with it. So the Lord would show that those gods are not true gods, that he is the one true and living God, that he can take water and turn it into blood. Ultimately demonstrating that in the plague where he turns the Nile to blood. Demonstrating also that Moses may have also thought of his time in the Nile as a child where he was to be cast into the Nile but delivered out of it and so we find that this is also a demonstration of life through death life through death and the shedding of blood in John 6:53, Jesus said to them very truly I tell you unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood you have no life in you whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise them up at the last day, for my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Now the further context there in John 6 is that this eating of the body and eating and drinking of the blood would be demonstrated in the partaking of the Lord's Supper in faith, so that in faith the, the, the bread and the wine makes us partakers of Christ. But if we don't partake of Christ, we will not be delivered. See, the Lord was pruning Moses' thoughts of ineffectiveness. Moses said, I'm not able to convince them. What if I'm not able to convince them? What if I lack ability? You'll see they won't listen to me. They already didn't listen to him. Remember when he killed the Egyptian and they said, and then he went to go and defend and he went to make peace amongst his brothers and they said, well, are you going to kill me like you killed him? They already didn't listen to Moses. Moses had a track record of ineffectiveness. The Lord was showing Moses that it's not his effectiveness. It's the Lord's ability that's going to be at work. His ability to take all of Moses' life, transform it for the Lord's purposes and beyond, to remove the enmity between man and God, to remove the impurity inherent in our sin nature, 
to deliver us from death by the blood of a redeemer. Moses was being pruned of his thoughts of ineffectiveness. Finally, the Lord is to prune Moses of his inadequacy to say that he is sufficient for Moses. For Moses is to object about his inadequacy when he says, I can't, I'm not good at speaking. I'm not eloquent with words. How are you going to accomplish it? I, how am I to stand before Pharaoh and for, before the people and proclaim such things when I can't even speak? In short, in not so many words, the Lord responds to Moses as he responded to Job in Job 40. Job asks God such uh, questions as to question the Lord and his work and his, and his providence. And the Lord said to Job in Job 40, he answered Job out of the storm. He says, now gird up your loins in verse 7 like a man. I will ask you, I will ask you and you instruct me. Will you really annul my judgment? Will you condemn me that you may be justified? Or do you have an arm like God? Or can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with eminence and dignity and clothe yourself with honor and majesty. Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and make him low. Look on everyone who is proud and humble him and tread him down. The, tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them in the dust together. Bind them in the hidden places. Then I will also confess you that your, that your own right hand can save you. And then he, the Lord says, Behold, now behemoth which I made as well as you. He eats grass like an ox. Behold, now his strength in his loins and his power in the muscles of his belly. He bends his tail like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze. His limbs are like bars of iron. The Lord's proclaiming himself to be the creator. In 41, he says, can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope on his noose or in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? When, when the Lord asked Moses, who made the mouth? Who causes, who is the primary cause, as we've been learning between primary and secondary cause, but who is the ultimate causal being of all things? And Moses is saying, but I can't. I'm inadequate. My, my, my life is war against me these 40 years where once I was a man of word and power as it says in Acts when he came out of Egypt and the 40 years in Midian had wore this man down where he lacked eloquence and the ability to speak. He had saw trouble, he had saw trial and he was saying now he was inadequate because of it. Charles Spurgeon was helpful to me. He said, trouble does not necessarily bring consolation with it to the believer. When we go through trials, there's no, uh, there's no consolation in the trial in and of itself. 
but the presence of the Son of God with him in the fiery furnace fills his heart with joy. He is sick and suffering, but Jesus visits him and makes his bed for him. He is dying, and the cold, chilly waters of Jordan are gathering about him up to the neck, but Jesus puts his arms around him and cries, Fear not, beloved, to die is to be blessed. The waters of death have their fountainhead in heaven. They are not bitter, they are sweet as honey, for they flow from the throne of God. Moses presents his inadequacies before God. He presents the trials of his life and the outworking of his speech before God. And God says, I'm not asking who you are, Moses. I'm telling you who I am. Moses is pruned of his inadequacies. And finally, Moses' final objection. Moses says, send another. Send, send whom you choose is, is in the NASB. In other translations, it says, now send another. They, they translate it that way because of the response of the Lord in verse 14. And so we see that there's, a, there's an inherent in objection to this. And Moses is saying, send somebody else. And in some ways, Moses' response is proper. Lord, I'm not capable of redeeming your people. And I think in some ways, without understanding the Lord's, the inner working of the Lord, but I think we can see the Lord's graciousness is his consideration of Moses as being animated dust, of being creature. And of his gracious, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's anger, it's response is anger and that he, he replaces Moses or he gives Aaron to Moses. But there's a way in which God, he's graciously responding to Moses because he doesn't completely do away with him. But he says, well, then I will picture to you and to the Israelites that you are not their mediator to a clear conscience. You are not their mediator to eternal life. I will use you to deliver them, my people, out of Egypt, but it will be through the words of Aaron, whom you will give words to, and he will speak. Moses, God is asking Moses, where, where are your eyes fixed? Moses and all his objections was his eyes were were completely fixed on himself. And here is the final correction when the Lord provides Aaron to Moses. He is providing a substitute for Moses. He is providing an intermediary between Moses and Pharaoh. And by it I think the Lord was training Moses's eyes to be fixed on the Lord. Alec Motyer says, where are your eyes fixed? The Lord did not take away or even promise to take away Moses' nervousness or to impart boldness to him. He did, however, call him to trust, to call him to a position of trust. He didn't say, Moses, I'll take care of your tongue. I'll take care of your ineffectiveness. I'll take care of your inadequacies. I'll take care of, uh, 
of, of these things. He's, he says, Moses, I will give you myself. I will give you my knowledge. I will give you my sufficiency. I will give you my ability. I will be your savior. Moses' final pruning here in our section is that he's pruned of his creaturely sight. Moses and all this pruning was to give it to the Lord. To trust the Lord. To give it to him. And so for us this morning as we see Moses being instructed. Being provided ability. Being reminded of God's sufficiency. And giving Moses an intermediary. And so picturing for Moses that the Lord will provide a savior. So for us, as we're encouraged, as we encourage one another to give it to the Lord, to give your cares to him. If you haven't turned to him first in repentance and faith, do that. Trusting in him wholly for your salvation. We do that daily. Even, even believers need to remember that. And so it is that we are to give it to the Lord. Attend to his instruction each Lord's Day to correct our ignorance relying on his ability to accomplish all his holy will over our ineffectiveness and proclaiming his sufficiency over our inadequacy and altogether looking to Christ who is the only qualified Savior. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks that you have met us here by your Spirit because of Christ and his completed work not because of our worthiness to receive such things, but because of you making us worthy in Christ. What wonder and praise and honor is due to you because of such things. Help us, Lord. We, like Moses, we, like the Israelites, lower our gaze. Forget what you've taught us. Forget who you are, how you work, what you've done. We thank you that we have knowledge that you will be ever gracious to us in Christ. We thank you and pray these things in his name. Amen. Well, it's very fitting to...